to be with you again. Um, as Carlin said, uh, we've been on Stafford Gateway for actually 33 years as of now. We came from the UK, you wouldn't know it from my accent, but that's the truth. And uh, five years ago, we went up to northern Manitoba for a few weeks, ended up staying two years. Uh, then we came back down here to Winnipeg. Another couple went up to pastor the church there. And uh, we were involved with our in-house Bible school, looking after seven interns, took them to India for a month. And then we went to BC to a sister church in Langley just for 10 weeks. They did a bit of a rough patch and they just needed some help. We ended up staying there for three years and uh, really witnessed the goodness of God in bringing restoration and hope and health and healing to a, a church that was uh, broken. Uh, God is good. And uh, that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. So let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to John chapter 4. Very famous passage of Scripture. While we are turning there, I just want to set the scene. 122 times a certain word appears in the New Testament. It's a word that is totally revolutionary. It holds out hope to everyone who knows they are failures and misfits. It banishes fear and brings about freedom. It assures forgiveness and it gives assurance. It's changed the course of history and it's transformed the lives of millions. Poets have described it as outrageous and amazing. I am, of course, talking about grace. Now, to many people, grace is an ice skater gliding over the ice, interpreting a lovely piece of music, or else it's a way an athlete performs a sequence of moves with liquid ease. Maybe it's a prayer that the grateful speak before sitting down to eat a meal. But for the Apostle Paul, grace was none of these things. Grace to him was the unbelievable truth that God loves sinners unconditionally. In fact, he was so impressed with grace, it's mentioned 93 times in the 13 letters that he wrote that are recorded in the New Testament. Now, although grace is the backbone of the New Testament, surprisingly, we don't get a pithy definition of what grace is from the pages of Scripture. But actually, we go one better. Because the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels and Acts, they give us a whole gallery of portraits of grace. How Jesus and his message through the disciples touched countless lives. Scholars tell us 
that the word grace is linked to a, a Hebrew word meaning to stoop or to bend, like a king bending down to attend to the needs of his subjects. With that in mind, the Bible teacher Donald Barnhouse used to say, love that reaches up is worship, love that reaches out is compassion, but love that reaches down is grace. And the New Testament is full of example after example of lives that were touched by Jesus, who, John tells us, was full of grace. And they received from him grace upon grace. So let's look then at one of these portraits of grace, one of these instances where God in Christ stooped and touched a life and brought transformation. The title of my message is God's Amazing Grace at the Well. Let's begin at verse 3. And if you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screen for us to follow along with. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Just make a little note of that. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, what you are drawing from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is the truth. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus said, True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. 
And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. There are four details in this story that highlight God's amazing grace as it encountered the woman at the well. Here's the first. Grace accepted her. Grace accepted her. Now, the woman in this story is so marginalized, it's not true. If anybody was at the bottom of the social ladder, it was this lady. First of all, she was a woman. And in Roman Judea, women were treated no more than mere chattels. They were perhaps more valuable than a dog, but way less valuable than a donkey, because a donkey could carry heavier loads. Women could be used, discarded, even beaten without any consequence. In fact, the Pharisees even had a prayer that said, Blessed are you, Lord God, that you have not created me a woman. So if you were a woman, you knew that you were pretty low in the pecking order. Secondly, she was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were cousins of the Jews. They lived in the same land, the same piece of geography, but they were ostracized for intermarrying with foreigners centuries before. A mixture of Jew and Gentile, the Samaritans didn't fit into either world and were rejected by both. In fact, they were so anathematized by the Jews that for about 400 years up to this point, no Jewish missionary was allowed to preach to a Samaritan. Imagine that. In fact, they were so despised that the Jews from Galilee, when they went to Jerusalem and then returned back, would make a detour across the Jordan just to avoid walking through Samaritan land and becoming polluted, so they thought, by stepping foot there. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. And thirdly, it seems like she was even a reject by her own people. Verse 6 tells us that she was at the well at the sixth hour. Now, on our clock, that's 12 o'clock noon. It's the hottest time of the day. And the women used to go and draw water either at dawn or dusk before the heat of the day set in. And it seems, the commentators tell us, that this woman was there at noon because nobody else wanted to know her. She was shunned and ostracized by friends and by neighbors alike. So this woman was pretty low down in the social order. She was a reject 
amongst rejects. But did you notice in verse 4, I told you to make a, a mental note of it. John says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, according to custom, he didn't. He should have avoided Samaria. But the truth was that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. His life was obedience to the father and the inner prompting of his heart of communion with his father directed him to go to Samaria. He was compelled by the spirit to go there because he knew that someone needed the touch of grace. Augustine said, he doesn't come to us because we deserve him. He comes to us because we need him. Corey Asbury is a great songwriter. He wrote that song, Reckless Love of God. And he could have had this meeting in mind. Let me just remind you of one of the, uh, the, the refrains on that song. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. And that's what Jesus did when he came after the woman at the well. Grace crosses every barrier. It breaks down every prejudice. Jesus comes and he sits with her. He speaks to her. He listens to her. And he takes a drink from her hand. All of those were taboos in the ancient world. And yet Jesus breaks everyone to help this woman experience what grace is like. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this. The notion of God's love for us, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law each offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares make God's love and his acceptance unconditional. That's called grace. And throughout history, there have been people who have been touched by grace. John Newton is a name we associate with God's amazing grace. He authored that hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. It became the anthem of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. It was a number one hit for Judy Collins in the 1980s. Somebody said it, it's the world's most sung religious song. And it was written out of the personal experience of a parish priest who had been a reprobate. John Newton went to sea at the age of 11. He was press-ganged into the British Navy at 19. He deserted at 20. He became a slave, tw a slave trader at 22. And for the next number of years, 
he broke every one of the Ten Commandments regularly. One writer said he could curse for two hours solid without repeating himself. Just think about that for a minute. And yet one night in a terrible storm when he thought his life was going to be taken, he turned to God and called out for mercy and found not a turn back, but open arms. He tasted God's grace. Who received him, accepted him, and then transformed him. In our time, David Berkowitz discovered the same. He was dubbed the son of Sam. He was a serial killer who terrorized New York in the 1970s. He was described as America's most hated man. Even in jail, the other prisoners gave him a wide berth and shunned him. And yet one night, he was lying on his bunk, he was reading a Gideon Bible, and he was reading the Psalms where it said, this poor man called out and God heard him. And he called out to God and God heard him. The son of Sam received the grace of of God and he was changed and transformed now he's a prison chaplain who's refusing parole simply so he can minister grace to other prisoners listen to what he wrote in his testimony he said by God's grace there's that word I am living proof that anyone can be forgiven who would have ever thought that such a wasted life like mine could be redeemed and salvaged? But Jesus Christ has purchased me, David Berkowitz, murderer, criminal, monster, devil worshipper, with his own blood. Who could understand a love and an acceptance like this? A love God has for wicked and fallen mankind. And if it's true for them... It's true. When we heard a few minutes ago, you know, whatever our experience is this week, However many times we've fallen, however many times we've failed, the truth is that there's a place of acceptance because God is a God of grace. However big our screw-up, however many bad choices we've made, whatever we are struggling with, whatever addiction seems to be stronger than us, it doesn't change the love of God towards us. Because his love is his grace, and it's unconditional. So let's not just receive grace and bask in it, but let's extend it too. Do you know, the world is hungry to experience grace. A number of years ago, we were shopping in Superstore and... Uh, I usually look at the books or sometimes look at the books there. And I was absolutely staggered to see Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace 
and Chuck Swindoll's The Grace Awakening on the bookshelves at Superstore. And it struck me, Loblaws wouldn't be selling these if people weren't buying them. People are hungry for grace. They are hungry to know that God loves them unconditionally, and so do we. They are hungry to know that despite their track record, God is for them. That's the first highlight. Grace accepted her. Here's a second highlight from this story. Grace touched her. So Jesus talks to this woman, and in the course of the conversation, it comes out that she is both intelligent and spiritual. She's someone actually in whom God has been working. And by the way, just as a little aside, out there, there are thousands of people in whose lives God has been working, preparing them to receive his message of grace through you and me if we take time to reach out to them. So in the course of the conversation, he asks a drink from her, verse 7, and then he ends up offering her herself a drink, verse 14. And in verse 15, she's thirsty to accept his offer. But look at verse 16. He says to her, go call your husband. And in verse 17, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're correct when you say I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one with whom you are with now is not your husband. What's happening here? Two things. First of all, we can only come to God when we acknowledge we've offended Him and there's sin in our lives. That we are blocked and alienated from God, but want Him to deal with that. Grace accepts us as we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are. It works to remove the barrier of sin and bring us into a personal relationship with God. The Bible clearly tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's quick to promise that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can't do anything to impress God. Going to church won't win his love. Reading our Bible won't do it. Good things can't remove sin. The only way we can come to God is to admit we have sin and ask him to forgive us. So here, Jesus exposes her sin in order that she might receive forgiveness. I wonder if Anybody here has never done that themselves. Maybe you've been coming to church. Maybe you're watching online and, and, you know, you tune in every Sunday morning. Maybe you've started to read your Bible. Maybe you're reading other books and are interested 
in Christianity and finding out more about Jesus. But the way to get to know him personally is to say, God, I'm a sinner. Come and forgive me. And there's going to be opportunity this morning to pray that prayer so that we can find what this woman eventually found. But there's another truth here, and, and I found this profound. Verse 17, Jesus says to her, You have correctly said I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Now, you said... God loves us unconditionally. Isn't Jesus rubbing her nose in her life here? Well, I don't think so. I used to think that Jesus was saying this in this way. You have had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. And then one day it struck me. In the ancient world, men could divorce women, but women couldn't divorce men. And what he's saying here is, you've had five husbands. You've been rejected five times. The man you're with now is not your husband. He's such a loser, he doesn't think you're worthy of a commitment. And what I thought was his tone, it's just the opposite. He's having compassion on her. The village where they were speaking was called Saika. Saika means drunken. And that's what the guys in this place were famous for, so it seems. And this woman had been passed around and used and abused. And God's grace came to her to touch her, to forgive her, and to heal her brokenness. Exposing our lives to God means receiving forgiving grace, and it means receiving healing grace. A number of years ago, I read a book by a Methodist writer called David Siemens, great writer. He had a counseling practice, and he met lots of people who were broken and needed God's grace. I want to read something to you that he wrote. See if you can identify with it, and you at home too. If you visit the far west, he writes, you'll see those beautiful giant sequoia and redwood trees. Park naturalists can show you a cross-section of a great tree they've cut down and point out that the rings of the tree reveal its developmental history year by year. Here's a ring that represents a year of terrible drought. Here's a couple of rings from years when there was too much rain. Here's when the tree was struck by lightning. Here are some normal years of growth. This ring shows a forest fire that almost destroyed the tree. Here's another of savage blight and disease. 
All of this, he writes, lies embedded in the heart of the tree, representing the autobiography of its life. And that's the way it is with us. Just beneath the protective bark, our concealing protective mask are recorded the rings of our lives. There are scars of ancient painful hurts, storm-ravaged seasons in our lives, scars from emotional winter that seems so hopeless. I remember going to Stony Mountain Penitentiary to uh, work with some of the inmates there. And one guy had been in there for 18 years. And I said, where, where did it all begin? He said, one day, my mum said to me, Jim, you're so bad, not even Jesus could love you. Wham. In went an arrow. And he carried that all his life until grace found him. I wonder if I'm speaking to the right people. Hey, we're all very respectable. This is Southern Manitoba. This is Bible Belt. Makes no difference whatsoever. Because we've all got rings in our life. We've all got scars. And we all carry pain. A number of years ago, a friend of mine in our church, he gave me a gift. He was a hunter. And this gift was a bear skull. He'd shot this bear and uh, eaten it. And, uh, but when it, it came... When the skull was exposed, there was something very interesting that he wanted me to see. And it seems he wasn't the first person to shoot at this bear. There was somebody else that had shot. And right inside, behind the ear, there, there was an arrow head. And it had been in there some years because the bone had started to grow around it. And he said to me, this animal must have had the worst headache for years until it learned to accommodate its pain. And that's what we do, folks. You know, people shoot arrows, words of rejection, words of judgment, and they stick in there, and we somehow learn to live with that. But that's not being healed. Healing comes when grace extracts it and grace covers it and grace heals it and things are restored and that's what Jesus was doing with this woman he was coming to her and he exposed the most painful thing in her life and he said if you let me touch you you'll never be thirsty to cover that pain ever again the third thing about their encounter is that grace accepted her, grace touched her, grace satisfied her. In their talk about water, as we've already seen, this woman gives him a drink, but then is keen to accept a drink from him. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
shall never thirst again, says Jesus. What he was saying was, I'm not giving you water to satisfy your parched throat. I'm wanting to give you water so that it will satisfy your parched spirit. So it will bring deep satisfaction to your heart by connecting you to God in a personal way. It's very interesting. It's actually very poignant that where they were was a picture of her life. She kept coming back day after day and drawing water and drinking it and getting thirsty again and then coming back and drawing water and drinking it, getting thirsty again. And Jesus says, that's what you've been doing with your life. You've been drawing from the well of illicit relationships. You've been drawing from the well of religion. She was an intelligent woman. She was theologically savvy. He said, but that's not going to satisfy you. Only one thing will satisfy you, the water that I will give you. You know, there are people like this woman today. You may have heard of some of them. Elvis, he tried to find satisfaction and meaning with stuff. Elvis had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom touring bus, and three motorcycles. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limo. The top was covered in pearl white naugahyde, and the body was sprayed with 40 coats of specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all the trim was plated with 18 karat gold. I guess that's easy to buy when back in the 50s you had $300 million in the bank. And yet when somebody asked him about his life, the word he used to describe it was empty. Boris Becker, he tried to fill his life with achievement. Before he was 22, he had won three Wimbledon titles. But when a reporter asked him what was the greatest challenge he faced, he said, to keep from committing suicide. He was so famous, yet so futile. Empty. Drinking from the well of achievement, but never satisfying his deep inner longing. Jesus said to the woman, and to Elvis, and to Boris, and to you, and to me, the water I give, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. Notice he says, whoever drinks, the offer is open to all. The water I shall give him, it's a gift. You don't have to work to impress God. We'll never thirst again. It will provide deep meaning and satisfaction to your life. So grace accepted her, grace touched her, grace satisfied her, 
And fourthly, grace commissioned her. Just look how the story ends. In verse 28, it says, The woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Jesus didn't stop her. Maybe he should have. After all, she was newly saved. She was untaught, never been to Bible school, never got a degree, never done a course, never attended a conference. Surely she needed to regularize her relationship. She needed to clean up her life. She needed to sit at somebody's feet and be taught and become a church member and go through all the stuff. But Jesus didn't put those limits on her. He just let her talk. Grace commissioned her. Two points here, and I'm nearly finished. First of all, Jesus uses the broken, the undeserving, and the unlikely. Next time you feel God can't use you, just remember this. Noah was a drunk, Abraham was aged, Isaac was a deceiver, Jacob was a liar, Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was afraid, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a harlot, Jeremiah was too young, David committed adultery, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, Joseph, Jonah ran away, Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was five times married and divorced and now living in common law. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer and Lazarus was dead. So no more excuses. God uses us, the unqualified, the untogether, the unlikely, the broken, once we have tasted of his grace. See, we aren't the message. We're just the messenger. In fact, it's better To have our hearts full of grace than our heads full of truth when we're sharing about the love of God. I'm not decrying truth. I've been to Bible school and all that jazz. But I'm old enough to know that it doesn't mean a hill of beans when you're talking to someone whose life is falling apart then your heart needs to be full of grace. But it only gets full of grace when it receives grace. And so as we bring this into land, I want to invite anybody here who has never, ever invited Jesus into their life, never tasted the water that he is offering, never accepted his grace and maybe that's you at home this morning it's safe in your living room 
But just as Jesus had to go to Samaria, he's come to you this morning. Just as this woman was alone at the well, maybe you're alone in your home. And it's time to take a drink of the water he's offering and receive his grace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I'm going to invite us to stand. And I'm going to invite us to pray together out loud the prayer that's going to be up on the screen. And you at home, if you've never received Christ, I want you to pray this. And then reach out to this church and tell them that you've received Jesus. Okay, let's pray together just to help folks along, shall we? Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross so my sins can be forgiven. I ask you to forgive me and come into my life. I want to drink from the water you give so I will never be thirsty again. I receive you, Jesus, today as my Savior, my Lord, and the treasure of my life. Now, Holy Spirit, would you seal that prayer in the hearts of those who have prayed it for the first time or are rededicating themselves this morning? Thank you for your amazing grace. Accepts us, touches us, satisfies us, commissions and uses us. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts in Jesus' name.